Turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians, and we will be in chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. As we've uh, had a few weeks of break from 2 Corinthians, we now come to the last part of the letter. The letter is broken up into four parts, and so here we are beginning this fourth part uh, in chapter 10 to 13. And so we'll be looking today at chapter 10, verses 1 through 6. Let's hear the word of God. Chapter 10, verse 1. I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away, I beg of you. That when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. This is God's holy word. Let's pray for God's blessing. Oh Lord, we pray that you would teach us your way, that we might walk in your truth and unite our heart to fear your name. There are many distractions in our hearts. There are many things that we could be thinking about this morning and during this time, many burdens, and we come to you even as sinners in need of your cleansing We pray, Lord, that you would forgive us of our sins through Jesus Christ and that we may be able to approach your throne now and that you might speak to us. So unite our hearts towards you and to see your glory. And we pray for your Holy Spirit's help in learning and applying your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're off to see the wizard, the wonderful Wizard of Oz. You know those words. Well, if uh, the Corinthians had been around in our day and knew about that story or that movie, and a child from the church of Corinth would say, who's preaching today as the family goes off to church? That might be the response of some Corinthians. They might say, we're off to see the Wizard of Oz. And a child would say, who is that? And they'd say, the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is back in town. He is come back to Corinth and he's going to be preaching today. The people in Corinth, many of them, and especially led by this group of false teachers, what many people call these super apostles, who are these false apostles, They 
would have said if they knew this movie about the Wizard of Oz that Paul was a lot like that Wizard of Oz. So if you know the story, you know that uh, the Wizard of Oz was seen as this terrible, fearful figure uh, who had his uh, subjects in fearful submission to him. Everybody is afraid of him. Dorothy and her friends, they hear about this great wizard. They are terrified that they will have to see him one day. And they get to the Wizard of Oz and he appears on this giant curtain screen with these flashing lights and loud noises and scary voices. And they're terrified. But it come to find out, spoiler alert, if you don't know the end of the movie, plug your ears. Come to find out that the Wizard of Oz is actually a puny old man from Omaha, Nebraska. And he had put up a big front. He had convinced the people of the land that he was a powerful and scary man. And he had made all this technology and tricks to make himself look scary, a big bad wizard. But he's just a little old man. And that's essentially the kind of thing that these opponents in Corinth were saying about Paul. As we get to this part of the letter, we see this especially, that Paul talks real big in his letters. Paul is big and bold, but in person, he's puny, weak, just an old man who's not very eloquent. And so Paul, in his letters, he's just putting up a front. He's, a, he's just a dog with a big bark, but he's got no bite. And now Paul is writing this part of the letter especially to defend himself and to go on the attack. To say that he does have a bite. To say that he is willing and he is going to deal with these false teachers and anyone in this minority in Corinth who is still opposing the gospel. Paul is a true apostle. He's not like the Wizard of Oz putting up a front. So that's what we're going to see as we begin to uh, this last part of the letter. Uh, like I said, this is part four, so this is like the last quarter mile of rounding the bend of finishing 2 Corinthians. Just a reminder of what we've been going through in this letter. Uh, so first of all, we remember in the first two chapters, Paul was defending himself as uh, someone who they accused of vacillating on his plans and not having integrity. And so Paul defended his travel plans and why he wasn't coming to visit Corinth. So he defended himself with that. And then in chapters three to six, he defended his ministry, that he was a preacher of the new covenant and that his weakness as a jar of clay was proof of his ministry because the spirit works through these clay jars as opposed to these powerful-looking, eloquent-looking other men who were preaching in Corinth. So he defended his ministry, chapters 3 to 6. Chapter 7 was the finishing up that part where he calls on again the Corinthians to be reconciled to him. And then we got to this most recent part of the letter of chapters 8 and 9. That was part 3, where Paul asked the Corinthians to give cheerfully to this mission in Jerusalem. And by giving to this mission in Jerusalem, they were showing their support of his ministry. 
So now, chapters 10 to 13, Paul goes on the attack. Paul is going to call out these false teachers, and he is going to encourage the church to do something about it, and he's going to tell us what he is going to do about it when he comes to Corinth. So he's basically saying, I'm coming, and here's what we're going to do about these false teachers. So now we begin that with uh, chapter 10, and we're just looking at the six verses today, and we're going to see how Paul fights for the gospel, how he fights for the gospel. And we can see this in two parts. First, he is the gentle warrior in verses 1 and 2, and then he is the gospel warrior in verses 3 to 6. So first, Paul talks about being a gentle warrior. Let's read verse 1 again. I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. Notice that Paul refers to himself three times at the beginning of that verse. I, Paul, myself. Technically, Paul is writing this letter with Timothy. He mentions that in chapter 1, verse 1. He's writing alongside Timothy. And so, probably at this point, it's as if he's really trying to emphasize and highlight that he really himself has something to say. It's like uh, you know, two guys, they're, they're about to get in a fight, and they, they pull, push everyone around and said, you got a problem with me, you, you fight with me. That's kind of what he's saying. Let's leave Timothy out of this. I Paul, myself, have something that I need to say. We need to deal with these opponents. So he uh, draws the attention to himself. And then he says, I entreat you. I beg you. He's going to uh, beg, make a request, a, a plea to the Corinthians. We'll come back to the meekness and the gentleness in a few minutes, but before he tells us what he's begging them to do, he has a little parentheses in verse 1. In my Bible, this, these long dashes, it's a parentheses, a statement. By the way, I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. And don't be confused by that. That's not Paul saying that's what he's actually like. That he is just a humble man face to face, but bold when he's away from them. No, he's being sarcastic, which goes to show us that sometimes sarcasm can be appropriate. Sometimes sarcasm gets your point across. Uh, So he's saying, I uh, am humble when face to face. This is what his opponents were saying about him. So remember, it's like they're accusing him of being like the Wizard of Oz. Paul is so nice and gentle when he's there in person. But then he writes these letters and he sounds like big, bad Paul. Maybe you know what a keyboard warrior is. Maybe you've heard of that. A keyboard keyboard warrior is the, the person who has an anonymous account online. So you don't know who they are. They don't have a name up. 
but they're posting stuff on social media or forums or whatever, and they're posting all this big, bold, brash stuff, making all these big arguments about how they are going to take back America, you know, and everybody just needs to do what they say, and everybody else is just completely wrong. And they write all this great-sounding stuff on the Internet, and it's a 14-year-old playing his Xbox and getting online to write these things. Just, just a kid who has no power, can't do anything, but with the keyboard, he's a keyboard warrior. That's basically what they're calling Paul. Paul didn't have keyboards, so they would have called him a, a letter warrior, a paper warrior. Someone who makes big claims but doesn't actually follow through. So he's being sarcastic there in verse 1, telling us a little bit about uh, what, what issues he's going to be dealing with. But then he says in verse 2 what he's begging them, the Corinthians, to do. Here's where I entreat you, he says. Verse 2, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. He's begging them that they deal with some things before he gets there. So that when he is present, when he gets there, he will not have to show boldness to them that he is counting on showing to these other people, these opponents. Paul doesn't want to show boldness to this group of the Corinthian church. And so he's begging them to get things straight before he comes. Get their act together. Deal with the problem. Deal with the opponents. Deal with the minority still in the church who may not be repentant. Paul doesn't want to show boldness towards this majority group of the church who is repentant. As Paul says in, a, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, 21, he says, Shall I come to you with a rod or with love? in the spirit of gentleness. He doesn't want to come to his church with a rod, having to exercise all kinds of discipline over a bunch of people in the church. He would rather come with love and the spirit of gentleness. But he can't just let everything slide. He can't just let sin go. And so he needs them to deal with the problem. And so he'll mention this later in verse 6, that he is ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. When the obedience of the church is complete. What the church needs to do is deal with any unrepentant opponents who are still in Corinth. And Paul's going to deal with these super apostles, these false teachers. So... Paul doesn't want to show boldness to them. They accuse him, he says, of those who of of being one who walks according to the flesh. So these false teachers are those who suspect him of walking according to the flesh. In other words, what these opponents are doing is they are evaluating Paul according to the flesh, according to human standards, worldly ideas. 
And they don't have any other category for how to evaluate a ministry. And so they say, well, Paul must also be walking according to the flesh. Paul must also be using worldly standards and metrics of success. And if you put Paul up to those standards, Paul is a complete failure. Because Paul is the puny, weak man. Paul has not a lot of metrics of financial or um, popularity. And so, if Paul measured according to the flesh, then he's a failure. And so Paul says, I'm going to be dealing with those people because I don't walk according to the flesh. I don't live my ministry based on these worldly and human standards. So, let's go back to verse 1 and Paul's attitude that we see in these two verses of how he's dealing with the church. We see him as the, the gentle warrior. He entreats the church. He wants to persuade the church, not come to them with a rod. He wants to deal gently with the church. He begs them by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Paul, towards the sheep of the church, wants to treat them with gentleness. He said to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 2 that he came to them as a mother, like a, like a nursing mother who is gentle with her children. Mothers are gentle. I'm a dad. I have a one-year-old now. The way that, that I like to play with my son is I like to throw him in the air and catch him. That's, that's what dads do. and Sons love being thrown in the air and getting caught. Mothers, they get terrified by you throwing their one-year-old in the air. Mothers are gentle. They like to snuggle their babies. And so Paul says this is what he was like, coming to the church with gentleness. Paul is so gentle that they accuse him of weakness. They see his meekness and they think it's his weakness. But Paul says this is the meekness and gentleness of Christ. This is what we are supposed to do. This is how we are to treat our church. Now, with the wolves, when the wolves start to attack the church and Paul is completely patient and he corrects his opponents with gentleness, that doesn't mean meekness and gentleness means just not dealing with things and letting everything go. No, eventually, after correcting your opponents with gentleness, you do have to hand them over to Satan. As Paul says, he, he does with false teachers. You have to bring the rod at times for the wolves, uh, for those in Galatia. When Paul writes Galatians, he has all kinds of harsh, hard, direct words to say to these false teachers. And we're going to see some pretty blunt things here in chapters 10 to 13 about the teachers in Corinth. So with the, the wolves who you 
continue to correct with gentleness and they still don't repent. They need to be dealt with. They need to have the rod of discipline, but toward the sheep. The job is to have meekness and gentleness. Now, meekness is basically the same as gentleness. Gentleness has the idea of uh, just treating softly and meekness has the idea of being patient and being willing to, to withstand pressure, um, like a force is acted upon you. you know, there are plenty of things that could push on you to make you angry. And instead of responding in anger, you are to continue to hold self-control so that you respond without anger, but in meekness. So meekness and gentleness both have the idea of having self-control. And we see that he's talking about the meekness and gentleness of Christ. And so it's especially in Christ that we see what meekness is like. We see that Jesus wasn't weak. Jesus was strong. Jesus had very blunt words for the Pharisees when he called for woes upon them. And he called them a brood of vipers. And Jesus turned over tables in the temple when he sees the unrighteousness that's being done and the the blasphemy of God. And yet Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary, because I am meek and lowly in heart, gentle and lowly in heart. So Jesus knows perfectly how to be righteously angry over injustice and how to be meek and gentle. And the way that Jesus did this was that he had perfect self-control. He had perfect self-control over what made him angry. He only would get angry over things that were truly injustices. When people insult him and attack him and hurt him personally, he has self-control to not respond in anger and vengeance. But when people blaspheme God, that makes Jesus angry. He's self-controlled over how he shows his righteous anger. You and I, we, we aren't like Christ. We, we aren't good at evaluating what is truly injustice against God that should make us righteously angry and what just really hurts us or offends us and makes us mad. And you and I, we aren't, as, we aren't good like Jesus is about controlling our level of anger. When Jesus was turning over those tables, he was perfectly in control of himself. And yet, how often we just, as, as we say, the blood just gets to your head. You just start losing control and you're just lashing out in anger. But Jesus shows perfect meekness. Self-control, being willing to withstand opposition. Jesus was meek, especially when he went to the cross. And you remember when uh, the soldiers came to arrest Jesus and Peter cuts off the right ear of a soldier. And Jesus says, Peter, don't you know that I could call 12 legions of angels right now to come down and defend me? 
Jesus could have been the, the warrior at that point, calling down all these angels to come and start a big fight. But Jesus shows his meekness because he has a mission to please God and to go to the cross. And Jesus shows his meekness by going like a lamb to the slaughter, to not defend himself when he is attacked, but to give up his life and lay down his life, and he does that to save sinners. But one day Jesus also will come back. He will come back and he will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. Psalm 2 says, kiss the son lest he be angry with you. There will come a day when he will come in his righteous anger and judgment towards the wicked. God hates the wicked every day, the psalm says. And so Jesus will come in righteous wrath and he will punish the wicked. Our call is to trust Christ and to trust him in his work and salvation so that we will not receive that punishment of the wicked, but instead receive his salvation because of what he has done by his meekness on the cross. And so we see Paul here wanting to show the meekness and gentleness of Christ. And we too should show meekness and gentleness towards one another. We, ha- we should show self-control over our anger and said, have love for one another, bearing with one another in love. So Paul is gentle towards the church. But now in part two, we see in the next verses, Paul is a warrior for the gospel. He's a warrior for the gospel. Starting in verse 3 through verse 6, Paul uses terms that all come from the military. He's describing a war, but he's talking about himself preaching the gospel in words that relate to warfare. So he talks about waging war in verse 3. He talks about weapons in verse 4. He talks about destroying strongholds. In verse 4, verse 5, destroying arguments and um, lofty opinions that are raised up, that are like the, the bulwarks that are raised up in a war, taking people captive, taking thoughts captive in verse 5, and then verse 6, punishing the insubordinate. So all of these are metaphors about a battle, a military. Paul probably gets this metaphor from Jesus. Jesus said in Matthew 16, verse 18, that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And so Jesus gives us an image of a city with gates, hell. Hell is on the defensive. And Jesus, starting in the New Testament, starts to build his church of the New Testament. And the church is the battering ram. The church has the weapons of warfare. The church is on the rampage against the gates of hell. And the gates of hell are getting battered down as we go in and we take captives out of hell. Jesus is saying he is building his church. Hell will not be able to withstand the offensive attack that the church is waging upon hell. Christ will win. Christ will be victorious. And his church 
will stand at the end of the day with Christ. And so maybe this is where Paul is getting his images from. Let's see what he says, starting in verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. Remember, at the end of verse 2, he was accused of walking according to the flesh. And he admits in verse 3, I walk in the flesh. In other words, he's using the word flesh in a different sense here. I walk in my physical body. It's not referring to his sin here. He's just talking about his frail physical body. I walk in a puny, older man's body. Yes, I have this earthly tent that he said in chapter 5 that I groan in because it's wasting away. The outer man is wasting away, he said in chapter 4. I am just a clay jar, he said. Yes, I admit, I walk in the flesh. And so everything that everyone else out there can accuse me of, as far as what I am physically, they are exactly right about that. Can't do anything to become smarter than I already am. I can't become more eloquent than I already am. I can't do anything about all these scars on my back. I walk in the flesh. But, he says, I do not wage war according to the flesh. And now he's using flesh in a different sense. According to the flesh, that original sense of according to human means, human standards and methods. So Paul's warfare that he's waging, he's saying it's not a physical warfare. It's a spiritual war. He doesn't wage war according to the flesh. So, here's the warfare that he's talking about in these verses. It's his preaching of the gospel. When he preaches the gospel, he is battering down the gates of hell. He is waging a war, but not according to the flesh. He's not talking about waging war with his sin in his flesh. He's not talking about waging a culture war and trying to change the political scene. That's not the war that he's interested in fighting. He wants to wage a war that is purely spiritual, that is supernatural. And he's saying that every time he preaches the gospel, there are wars being fought. There are weapons that are being thrown out. There are bullets that are being shot to destroy those who fight for Satan. That should encourage us that even when we walk in the flesh and you might feel you're not the very intelligent, as intelligent as you wish you would be. You don't know all the stuff that you wish you could know. You're not as eloquent as a speaker or in presenting the gospel as you wish you could be. You're not a charismatic person that other people would gravitate to and be drawn to. But your war that you're waging is not in the flesh. You wage a supernatural war. All you need is the word of God and the Holy Spirit. This word of God has divine power, we'll see, to destroy strongholds. 
And so we go to war every time we preach the gospel. So this is the war he's waging. Now in verse 4, we, t- we see the, the first um, metaphor of war that he uses with a stronghold. Verse 4, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. A stronghold is a fortress. It's the part of the city that would be reinforced. They would build it up, make the walls more thick, more high. They would put the men there. They would have secret places where they could hide weapons and stuff and people, soldiers. And so they would, they would when, when the rest of the city falls, they would go to the stronghold. And they would defend the stronghold at all costs. So this is the strongest part of the city. If you want to keep using the metaphor, these are the strongholds of the gates of hell. But Paul says, his weapon, preaching the gospel, has divine power to destroy strongholds. The word of God is his weapon. The preaching of the word of God in the gospel is his weapon. Sometimes people use this passage um, as justification for things like uh, apologetics and debates. And uh, in some ways, you can use that as justification, but it's not really what this passage is talking about. Because a, a Christian apologist can talk all day about the existence of God. And that's not going to batter down the gates of hell. A Christian apologist can tell you that the New Testament manuscripts are reliable and that that might be helpful information, but that's not going to rescue a person from hell. People can have a debate where two guys sit at a table and it's as if one man has an opinion that's equally as valid as the other man's opinion and everybody in the audience gets to decide who wins the debate. Paul doesn't debate. Paul's not interested in winning a debate. Paul's weapon is the preaching of the gospel. And when you preach the gospel, it's not about who wins the debate. It's about the word of God having power to destroy the stronghold of a person's life. A person has a dead heart and that heart needs to come alive. Satan has bound that man and has him captive. And the only way for him to be released is through the preaching of the gospel, not debating, not defending the faith. Those things might be helpful, but ultimately, that's not the weapon that destroys the strongholds. Now, what are these strongholds? This is a popular phrase in some places. In missions, people like to talk about strongholds as geographical locations where they would say this part of North Africa or North Korea, there is a stronghold there. There are demons who are in charge of this particular location in the world. And so their solution is kind of like Jacob and Jericho. We need to, we need to do prayer walks. We need to walk around the city and we need to call upon these demons to be cast out in the name of Jesus and 
tear down these strongholds through prayer. That's what some people think. Other people in the more charismatic circles, they would say that a stronghold is a sin in your life. Sin that we would call a besetting sin that kind of is taking over you, that's hard for you to defeat. But Paul tells us what these strongholds are. He says in the next verse, we destroy arguments, opinions. It's not about my sin. There is a spiritual war going on that I need to fight to fight my sin. There, there is a spiritual war in missions, but that's not what he's talking about here. The strongholds are arguments, opinions that blind people to the gospel. In our day, these strongholds would be ideas like secularism. The idea that there is no God, that you're not really accountable to him. Anybody can do whatever he wants to do. We have our secular creeds in this culture like, love is love. Says who? Who taught you that? Ah, I just, that's just what we believe in the culture. We just say, love is love. Your truth is your truth. You do you. Okay, well, why? These are just, these are just ideologies that people just believe because they've been told to them over and over again. They are theologies, things we believe about God and things we believe about the world. In Corinth, the ideologies, the strongholds would be beliefs about materialism, that wealth is what's important and that's what you should pursue, eloquence and success. These were the strongholds that everybody believes in, in Corinth. And so, of course, when you look at Paul, you're not going to receive the gospel Because Paul is the exact opposite of what you've always been taught your whole life in your culture. But when Paul preaches the gospel, it destroys those beliefs that you have. So these are the strongholds that the gospel destroys. Then he goes on in verse 5 to the, the next metaphor, a rampart. We destroy arguments. And every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Uh, The rampart is seen in the the opinion that is raised. He's using a word here that talks about raising up a wall, a rampart to defend your city. And so the, the ramparts that Satan tries to build up as he is defending the gates of hell is arguments. Lofty opinions, these false theologies and false ideologies. Satan raises them up against the knowledge of God so that if you grow up in this culture, you will assume and believe certain things unless you hear the gospel. But the good news is this gospel destroys arguments. It's a great word, isn't it? destroys these arguments stand no chance against the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ had a professor in school who would say go for the jugular of the argument 
not the jugular of the person. So that when we were writing papers and things like that, we were not to attack the person, but we were to attack the argument and go for the jugular, you know, because that, that's what kills, kills the argument. Did you destroy the argument when you go for the jugular? And that's what Paul is saying we should do. Don't attack the people. Don't attack the people that you disagree with. Attack the arguments with the preaching of the gospel. People in our culture are blinded with a spiritual blindness. People in the capital in Albany who are passing laws to promote abortion. It's not that they don't know the truth. They know that a baby in a womb has its own DNA. They know it's its own person. And yet they are obsessed, intent on passing these laws because they, they have a stronghold of a, an argument that has blinded them completely. These people who are wanting radical surgeries for minors who identify as a different gender. Everyone knows what chromosomes are when you learn a little bit of science. Everyone knows that a male's a male and a female is a female. What is possessing people to do all these things? Spiritual blindness. Satan has kept them within the gates of hell. But knowing that should help you have compassion and how you interact with those people. They are responsible, of course, for what they do. But they're being blinded by these arguments and opinions that Satan has raised up against the knowledge of God. These are things that are keeping them from the knowledge of of God, and it can also help you to have hope. What we look around and see as a bunch of madness to us, we can look at the Word of God and have hope. The gospel goes for the jugular of the arguments. The hope for this world, for this nation, is not to win political arguments. We're not even going to win the, the arguments over gender or when is a person a person. Preach the gospel. And when you preach the gospel, it destroys all the arguments. Every opinion raised against the knowledge of God gets battered down. Every thought gets taken captive. So this next metaphor, taking captive. You go into the city, you defeat the city, you take captives out of the city, you capture them. This is what the gospel does. It rescues people out of the gates of hell. And when people are rescued out of the gates of hell, their thoughts are taken captive to obey Christ. See the issue? The issue is they need the gospel. When they come to know Christ, their thoughts are submitted to obedience of Christ. And this is true for us, too, even as Christians. Christian, you need to ask yourself, is every thought of yours taken captive to Christ? And here in, in the context, what he's really saying is, is every belief that you have, every argument that you have, every opinion that you have 
about these ideas and ideologies and theology? Is it taken captive to obey Christ? Do you submit to Christ in your beliefs? I, was, I just heard a story a few days ago about, about someone who, I think it was, he was in England, and he said, now I don't, I don't get the whole homosexuality or gender thing. I don't, I don't get why you're saying it's wrong, but I want to follow Christ, and so I want to obey what the Word of God says. So he's willing to take his thoughts captive to obey Christ. And you, you have the same choice. Is every belief going to be submitted to Christ? Notice he says it's about obedience. It's not about logic, rational arguments. It's about obedience. Jesus says the scriptures cannot be broken. Jesus says God created man, male and female. Jesus says Jonah got swallowed up by a great fish. So who are you going to believe? You're going to believe Jesus or a professor in college? You're going to believe Jesus or what your culture tells you, what the the TikTok star is constantly bombarding you with, what these people on YouTube are always telling you about gender and what it means to be male and female. Are you going to believe YouTube or are you going to believe Jesus? It's a matter of submission to the Lordship of Christ. And so this is the problem. People do not submit to Christ. It's a moral problem. And so through the gospel, thoughts are taken captive to obey Christ. Especially for those of you who are younger, kids. Uh, I've heard people say that... Um, A few generations ago, Christianity was believed by most people as true in America. It's not really an argument about that. Most people claim some Christian beliefs. A few generations later, Christianity is not as popular anymore, it's not as believed anymore, but it's acceptable to believe Christianity. But now, Christianity is not acceptable. Christianity is seen as harmful. It's seen as doing violence. If people saw this sermon, if they listened to this sermon, they would think that I'm doing violence to other people in our day today by simply preaching the word of God. And so, young people, you're going to grow up in a world where you will be attacked for being a Christian. Will you submit every belief To the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what you're called to do. Well, the last metaphor we've looked at already in verse 6. Ready to punish every disobedience. You punish the insubordinate. Uh, Paul is talking there about the false teachers. And so he's ready to deal with the false teachers because... When people bring the world's ideologies and theology into the church, they must be dealt with. So, let's conclude. What I want you to walk away with from this passage is confidence in the gospel. Confidence in the church of Jesus Christ. 
This church has a divine weapon that destroys strongholds in every argument and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. We can have confidence in the power of the gospel. Of course, God doesn't guarantee that every local church will always exist forever. We know that there are churches that come and go, they open and close. But we can think, well, if we have the power of the gospel, why can God not use us to destroy these strongholds? Why do we not pray fervently for people to be saved? Why don't we pray, as that song says, we long to see thy churches full. We want to see the churches full, not because of some human standards or human methods, but because we preached the gospel and we see sinners being saved and we multiply and we see churches planted across New York. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that instead of everybody moving to Florida, we would plant churches in New York because the gospel is destroying strongholds? And so... We can have concern over things that happen in the world, but we don't need to wring our hands. As we were learning earlier about King David before Goliath, we don't need to cower in fear. We don't need to move to other states because we have the gospel. Uh, I am what Sam Waldron calls an optimistic amillennial. So... I am optimistic, not about the culture, not about politics. I am optimistic about the church of Jesus Christ. So preach the gospel and be encouraged that you are a part of a church that is battering down the gates of hell. And when you serve in the nursery, And when you serve others in the church and you love one another, you're part of this great kingdom as Jesus Christ rules the world sitting at the Father's right hand. He is ruling his world, establishing his kingdom through local churches like this one. May we be faithful to his word. May we be faithful to preach the gospel. Let's pray. Our God, we do thank you that we, by your grace alone, belong to Jesus Christ. Through faith in him, we are united to the king who rules over this world. We thank you, Lord, that we need not fear that judgment that's coming. But we have confidence in belonging to you and reigning with Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to be faithful to you. Be faithful even unto death. We pray that we would love you and love your church and that you would build your church. 
May we humble ourselves before you. May we not do this for getting glory of ourselves. May we not use any other human weapons, but the weapons of divine warfare. Help us, Lord, to be faithful in proclaiming your truth. We ask in Jesus Christ. Amen.